So we're thankful that we get to come to God's Word this morning in Matthew chapter 9. If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34. These are the verses that we'll be in this morning. We're going to enter into our time of worship, which we can worship God through the study of God's Word. So as you turn there, let's read God's Word together. We're going to be in verse 27 to 34. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 27, it says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, a blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. When he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Let's bow in the word of prayer as we are approaching God's word. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of God's word. Lord, we expect you to teach us tremendous things through this portion. Lord, as we are approaching this portion, we pray a portion of God's word, we pray that we will be like these individuals, these blind men who had faith in Jesus Christ, that we would um, proclaim true faith in him. Help us, God, as we are um, approaching your word this morning to learn and to grow as we are seeking you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this world... Many plays and many depictions are made about Jesus. In 1970s, a famous play, a famous theatrical production was made about Jesus that kind of bridged between rock and roll and theater play, eventually made way to bridge uh, uh, way for more plays such as Cats and Les Miserables. This is a play called Jesus Christ Superstar. If you ever heard about this play, the story is about Jesus during the Passion Week, and it ends with Jesus Christ crucified. He did well in the 70s because he portrayed Jesus as a revolutionary fighter against uh, political and also religious establishment. It did well in the 70s because 70s is all about fighting against political establishment. However, this play is not without its criticisms. Its criticisms basically land in two major points. Namely, it leaves out the truth that Jesus Christ is God. It simply ended with Jesus Christ dying as a result of his fight against the political establishment, the religious establishment, but it leaves out the fact that he was God and certainly leaves out the fact that he resurrected from the dead. It also portrayed the story from a twist. Namely, it was telling the story from the perspective of Judas Iscariot, the person who betrayed Jesus. As a result of these criticisms, there, are, there is much controversy that was surrounding this play. Some people really liked it. For example, the Vatican really, really liked the portrayal of Jesus. Pope Paul VI was treated to advanced screening of this particular play, and to which he said, and I quote, Mr. Jewison, not only do I appreciate your beautiful rock opera film, I believe it will also bring more people around the world to Christianity than anything ever before. So the Vatican, the Catholic Church, really, really liked this film or this play. Other people, they despised it. There's a protest by the American Jewish Committee protesting this film, thought that it presented an unfair and anti-Semitic 
message. Billy Graham also was not a fan of this particular play. He accused the musical of bordering, uh, bordering blasphemy and sacrilege. I quote, he said, to the fact that it leaves out resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Though Billy Graham later did admit that it could possibly help Christianity or the, the progress of the gospel if, and I quote, if the production causes young people to search the Bibles to extent that may be beneficial. So the world really liked this particular play, really liked the show to, this, to the degree that the show is still going today. If you didn't know, John Legend is Jesus in 2019. The world tour is still going. People are still going to watch the show. Jesus is an influential figure. He is a controversial figure. People love to know more about Jesus. If you can present Jesus in a historical manner, especially you can present Jesus in an alternate viewpoint other than what the scripture had portrayed Jesus to be. However, scripture portrays Jesus very, very differently than what these films or these plays portrays Jesus to be. Jesus, as scripture portrays Jesus, is God himself. He came not just to fight against political establishment or religious establishment. He came ultimately to save sinners from their sins. We are sinners before God. We all sin against a holy and a righteous God. Jesus Christ came to save sinners from that eternal punishment called hell and to bring us into that place where we can be with him forever in heaven. That's what he did. The way that he did so is by coming to the earth and live a perfect life for you and I and die on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins. As he paid for the penalty of our sins, he also gave his perfect righteousness to us. To that degree, we're restored back to God. We now have the purity that Jesus Christ has. God restored us unto himself, and this is the story of Scripture. Today, as we restore back to God, we get to live an abundant life for Jesus Christ. That's a good story. Not only are we restored back to God in eternity, we're also restored back to God today. We get to live a life in which we're, uh, we are following Him. We get to live a life which that's abundantly uh, rich in which we're following Him. That's the good story. That's the overall summary of what Scripture is trying to teach us. So today in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 to 34, we're going to see this truth that they again displayed. But again, we're going to see the fact that many people are going to come to Jesus with varying perspectives. People are going to come to Jesus either believing onto him. People are going to come to Jesus either being fascinated by him and his story, but not necessarily believing. And thirdly, people are going to come to Jesus openly declare unbelief. We're going to see this truth here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 to 34. As the world is doing right now, it's portraying different perspectives of Jesus. Not necessarily the biblical perspective, but just a differing perspective. And the world is fascinated by who Jesus is from these differing and not yet a biblical perspective. Today, however, if we look in the scripture and understand what the scripture says regarding who Jesus is, then we will arrive not just a mere fascination about who Jesus is, but we're actually arrived at salvation. We will be saved. We will have a eternal life with Jesus. We will also have an abundant life here on earth. So this is the point of passage here today in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 to 34. We're coming to this passage believing or seeing that Jesus is declaring himself as a Savior, as the Messiah, and there are going to be three responses which we're going to see in this passage. Those who believe, those who are simply fascinated, and those who are openly going to declare unbelief. So first, we're going to see those who believe. Let's look at the passage here, verse 27 to 30. We're going to see individuals who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27 to 30 says this. 
And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, a blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. Let's stop right there for a second. So, so far, as we're looking at Jesus' ministry, he's been declaring to all that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That is the point of Matthew. He is the King. He's the Messiah. He came to save the people from their sins. The message is that the kingdom of God is coming. Repent. Repent and believe. That's the message of Jesus Christ. As Jesus is proclaiming this passage, or this, this, uh, this message, rather, he's also demonstrating miracles. He's demonstrating to all that he can do things that no one else can do. I mean, these miracles basically declare that he is God himself. He's doing miracles of healing. He's healing people of, of sicknesses that no one could be healed from if we were just considering medical, um, red, uh, medical uh, um, uh, cure in those days. He actually was healing people who were lepers. He healed a leper. He healed a centurion servant. He was able to heal a woman with a blood loss that had the blood loss for 12 years and she was going to doctors and various uh, people trying to get healing and she was unable to he be healed. Jesus touches, or this woman touches Jesus and she was immediately healed. Jesus was also able to heal Jairus' daughter who was at that point dead. So he was able to raise the dead. Jesus was able to do miracles that no one else can do. He had power over the physical body. We also saw that Jesus had power over the nature. Over nature, Jesus was able to calm the storm while the storm was going on, raging hard. Jesus, with the word, calmed the storms. Even the molecules had to open, have to obey Jesus. And lastly, we saw Jesus was able to have power over the supernatural. Jesus had power over the supernatural in the sense that he was able to cast out the demons, the 5,000 demons that were inside these two demoniacs. With the word, Jesus cast them out. He had power over the supernatural. And as Jesus was claiming who he is, and demonstrating the miracles, he's also telling people that you should come to him and, and believe unto him. He's declaring to all that the pathway of salvation is coming to Jesus and also coming to him with a hard attitude of being poor in spirit, mourning over their sins. We saw this in the Beatitudes. As Jesus is doing this, he's showing all that he is God. And we also saw people who actually did display faith in Jesus Christ. A leper, he had faith in Jesus. His faith was proclaimed as example by Matthew for all to follow. Centurion had faith in Jesus. Uh, Jairus had faith in Jesus. This woman with blood loss had faith in Jesus. Their faith were example for all to follow. However, now as we're coming to verse 27 to 34, we're going to see two more healings. And we're wondering why did Jesus or why did Matthew list two more healings? What's the significance of these two healings? It's a healing of, a blind, of, two, of two blind men, also a healing of someone who's mute, mean, uh, meaning that he's unable to speak. He was demonically possessed, demonically oppressed. What's the purpose of having two more healings? After all, Jesus had already raised someone from the dead. If Jesus already raised someone from the dead, what other miracles are more significant than that? I believe that Matthew actually is here telling people about these two healings for a purpose and a reason, not necessarily demonstrating the faith of, or well, demonstrating the healing itself, the power of Jesus, but rather demonstrating the, the response to Jesus as he's proclaimed himself to be the Lord and Savior, the Messiah. First, we're going to see the healing of the blind men. And this is where we're going to see individuals believe. This is the first response 
that Matthew is going to tell us as a result of Jesus' ministry here in Galilee. If you arrive at this point of ministry in Galilee, this, ministry, this passage is really at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is before Jesus calls the 12 disciples and sends them out throughout all Galilee region. He's pretty much done at this point in terms of ministering, ministering in Galilee. He's about to move on from the ministry of Galilee. And Matthew is actually drawing a conclusion how people are going to respond to Jesus. So first, he's going to tell us people are going to believe. Some people, some individuals believe, and we see the example here in these two blind men. So in verse 27, we see, As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, blindness is something that is quite common in the days of Israel. You can get blind for all kinds of reasons. You get blind because of disease. You can get blind because of physical injury. It's a place where there's a lot of sand. You can also become blind because, well, from something that you got from birth. Uh, there's a, a, a common reason for blindness as babies were born and mothers had um, bacteria in the uterus in the form of gonorrhea and they don't even know because the symptoms do not show in a mother. But when the baby is passing through the uterus, this bacteria can get caught in the eye uh, and then causing the baby to become blind as little as three days. So when the baby becomes blind, as little as three days, these people will grow up, they'll be basically blind all their lives. So today, if you ever go to the hospital, you know that when the baby is born, the doctor will immediately take the baby and drop antiseptic drops into the eye of a baby to prevent these kind of things from happening. So we can do it today, but in the days of Jesus, there was no such thing. You, know, you were born blind, you were born blind, this is just your lot in life. For these two men, we don't know why they were born blind or why they were blind. They could, have been born, they could have been born blind or they could have been blind because of a disease or injury. Whatever reason it is, we don't know. But we do know the important thing is that they come to Jesus in faith. They came to Jesus in verse 27 saying this, Have mercy on the son of David. Have mercy on the son of David. They're coming to Jesus in faith, proclaiming Jesus to be the son of David. Now, the son of David is a term... By the Jewish, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish day, in those days, to refer to the Messiah. If you don't know, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when we first started this study in the book of Matthew, Jesus was referred by Matthew to be the son of David. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this is genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That's what Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says. Jesus is the son of Abraham because in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Jesus was declared to be a blessing to all nations through Abraham. And also in 2 Samuel, I believe, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 through 17, Jesus Christ was proclaimed to be coming uh, to be the son of David in the sense that he's going to come through the line of David. He's going to be the king that's going to rule for all times. So these men, they're following Jesus, proclaiming Jesus to be the son of David, completely trusting in Jesus that Jesus is who he claims himself to be. And they're following Jesus. And here in verse 27, we read that Jesus heard that he was following, they were following him, and he was, he was walking, and alongside as they followed him, he entered into a house, and the blind man also came to him as Jesus was in a house. So this is just not a, so imagine with me, Jesus walking on the road, and he entered into a house, and these blind men followed him. Now we might think that this is a significant house, but it really isn't, because Jesus likely at this point in time is entering the, um, the last portion of his day. So the way that Matthew actually puts this passage together here in verse 8 and verse 9, it almost looked like this is all happening the same day. This was a typical day of Jesus. Before this, Jesus was 
what he was doing. He was healing Jairus' daughter before this. He was healing the woman the blood lost before this. He was talking with John the Baptist, um, his disciples. He would, and before this, he was um, uh, calling Matthew, uh, eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Before this, he was healing the paralytic. So Jesus was actually having a quite busy day. Uh, the, Matthew kind of linked it all together to describe a typical day of Jesus. So Jesus was having a busy day, and this is at the end of his day, is walking to the house, about to rest. You know, his house in Capernaum, likely Peter's house, and these men following Jesus, and Jesus hasn't stopped ministering. He says to them, do you believe I can do this? And these men says, I believe. We believe. And Jesus says, well, according to what you believe, here in verse 29, let it be done to you. At that point, their eyes were open. Their eyes were open. Jesus continues to do ministry. So here, what we find, the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. Even though Jesus healed, his heart was always that people would believe. It was never about the healing itself. The healing was only there to demonstrate that he was God, to authenticate the message. But the message is that people would believe. His heart and motive, his modus, uh, modus operandi, is that people would believe unto him. And this is shown also here as their eyes were opened in verse 30, that Jesus sternly warned them, seeing that no one knows about it. Verse 30. Jesus commanded them, after he healed them, that no one should know about this miracle. And this command oftentimes presents to us as a puzzling command, because why would Jesus not want anyone to know? Why would Jesus not want anyone to know? The only reason why Jesus would not want anyone to know is because he cared about the heart of the individuals. You see, Jesus was never ever just about the healing. Because healing will present all kinds, present opportunity for everyone, if the crowd knows about it, for opportunity for sensationalism. People will come to Jesus and just simply want to have him perform more miracles. Show us this, show us that. But Jesus' heart was never ever about appeasing the crowd or maintaining image in front of the crowd. His heart was always about individuals. His heart was always about the salvation of individuals. That's why his message was also always about individuals coming to him, being poor in spirit, mourning over their sins. So even though Jesus could have attracted a bunch of people because of miracles, he never did it. He's not like the sensational pastors and, and evangelists that you see on TV. He did not want any of that. His heart was that people would not know about this particular miracle that he's doing to the blind man. Now, why is he doing this miracle? Well, because he loves the blind man. He cares for them. He wants them to know salvation. So he doesn't mind that his miracles are known to individuals because to individuals, they have a proper category for these miracles. They can categorize it under the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that I should believe unto him as Lord and Savior. But for the crowd, they don't have that category. If you just go out there and tell people that, hey, there's a man that can heal all kinds of diseases, crowd just come to Jesus, want the healing, but they don't necessarily want to surrender their lives to him. So Jesus knew what his miracles would do, so therefore he was very careful how his miracles were presented to the crowd. Very, very careful. He wanted people to come to him by faith. He didn't want people to come to him because they're sensationalized by his miracles. Now, as opposed to Jesus, I want to say this, sometimes we're more excited about the crowd, right? We're more excited about the crowd than we're excited about ministering to individuals. That's unfortunate for us. We're more excited, more people come, than we're excited about one person, if they know Jesus or not. But Jesus is not like that. He's more excited about one individual than he's about the crowd. That should serve as an example for us. Are you excited about individuals rather than the crowd? 
I remember when I first went to seminary and there's a discussion, and I share this with you among pastors, about pastors, why, they sh- uh, why or why not they should give out their cell phone numbers. <laughs> right? Why you should give out, why you should not give out your cell phone numbers. The, 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 the discussions are surrounding, can the pastor handle it? Right? Is this pastor going to be overwhelmed, the request? And some people say, no, you should not. Some people say, you should. What's the answer? I say, I believe that you should. Many of you have my cell phone number. And the reason why I believe that is because I see that in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was never about just the crowd. When I went to seminary, people, the many, many seminary students just want to preach. All they want to do is preach. Preach the crowd, as many crowds as possible. But they don't like doing ministry of visitation. They don't like the ministry of hospital visits. They don't like the ministry of individual counseling. Those just take up a lot of time. They want to limit those. But they love preaching to the crowd. Jesus was never like that. He was never like that. He was always rubbing shoulders with the individuals, telling them about who he is. I look at our office, and this is something I'm reminding me when I first became pastor here at First Baptist Church Hollywood. The office which I'm in, if you ever visit the inside, I loved it because it reminds me what the pastoral work is all about. And this is something you all experience as staff. When you're in the office, in the staff office, the only way to the sanctuary is through my office. And the only way from the hallway to the sanctuary is through my office. That's the closest way. I could close the doors and you have to walk all the way around. But if you come to my office, it's the closest way. You see, I don't know why they designed it that way, but I believe that the builder of the sanctuary had a purpose and a reason that the pastor should be among the people. Now, he could have, the builder of the sanctuary about this building could have put the pastor's office all the way down the hallway. Literally, I could lock my doors. I don't have to talk to nobody for a whole day. I just study the Bible, right? I study the Bible, and nobody, I will not see anybody, and all I have to do is present a great message on Sunday morning, and that's all I have to do. But the way that the office is constructed, people have to walk by if they want to walk through from the staff office to, to, the, to the sanctuary, and there's a lot of traffic through my office. And I loved it. I loved it because it reminds me what the pastoral work is supposed to be all about. You should know individuals within the church. You should know individuals within the church. And that's what Jesus' ministry was all about. He was all about individuals. He was all about ministering individuals and making sure they understand the gospel. He wasn't about the crowd. He could have shown his miracles to the crowd and the crowd would be coming to him left and right. But he didn't want that. He wanted individuals to know who he is. And certainly that is our heart before God as well. That's how God treats us now as well. You see, for salvation, in order for you to come to Jesus Christ, in order for you to be saved, you have to offer to God your individual heart. You have to offer to God your individual heart. It doesn't matter what your parents believe. It doesn't matter if your family believes. It doesn't matter if your son or daughter believes. You have to believe. You have to believe and inherit that eternal salvation of God. You have to be one believe. God is looking at your individual heart. God is always about individuals. And certainly we see that in Jesus' ministry. So we see these two blind men coming to Jesus, believing they serve as an example for us as we shall also come to Jesus, believing unto him. As we believe, we surrender our lives to Jesus as these two blind men are. We tell people about Jesus. As we tell people about Jesus, we're going to see the second category of people and how they respond to Jesus. Namely, there are those who are simply outwardly fascinated. They're simply those who are superficially fascinated, but they don't really want to surrender their lives. It's the crowd who are doing this. We see in the next portion of this passage in verse 31 to verse 33. 
We're going to see those who are simply fascinated with Jesus, but they don't, they're not going to surrender their lives. So verse 31, it says this. But it went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. When the demon has been cast out, a mute man spoke, and the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. So we're seeing people who are going to be fasting about Jesus. And as, as the two blind men were, were healed and they went out, they did not obey the commandment of Jesus. Basically, Jesus told them, hey, don't tell anybody. They went and told everybody. As a result, what, we're going to, what we see here in the next portion of the passage is that more people are brought to Jesus. Namely, here, a mute man, a person who was demonically oppressed, uh, demonically possessed, whatever it is, that he was unable to speak. As a demon was cast out, he was able to speak. Now, I believe the point of the passage isn't really necessary demonstrating the faith of the mute man because he doesn't say anything about the mute man. He doesn't talk about his faith, doesn't talk about what he believes, doesn't talk about anything of that sort. He doesn't even talk about how he's going to how he responded to Jesus' healing. All he talks about here is how the crowd responded. So I believe that the point of this passage here in this portion is to speak about the crowd, how the crowd is responding to Jesus' miracle. And the crowd is responding in such a way that they're marveled. They're fascinated. They're saying that there's nothing like this ever done in Israel. Now, we might look at this and say, wow, that's a, that's a compliment, right? That's a compliment. Nothing like this was ever done in Israel. However, we're going to find out that this crowd, as they marvel, they simply stayed marveling. They never, ever surrendered their lives to Jesus because later on, just two chapters, that Jesus ends his ministry here in Galilee. He says this to uh, regarding regarding the um, the ministry here in Galilee in Matthew chapter 11, you could turn this with me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24. This is the the, the summary of his ministry in Galilee region. He says this that he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, have been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And your Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. But I tell you that you will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we see here the summary of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee region. People did not believe. They were superficially fascinated. They marveled at the miracles of Jesus, but they would not surrender their lives to Jesus. Simply marveling. Keep standing on the sidelines, but they would not actually take the step in and believe. And such is also what we find in the people's hearts today. I remember one time in the work situation, I was uh, sharing the gospel with a coworker. And I shared the gospel with him for quite a long time. He, was, he knew that I was a Christian. He, we talked quite a bit. One day he came up to me. He was really excited. and says, hey, I've been watching this, this Bible series on, on TV. I said, oh, what kind of Bible series are you watching? This Bible mini-series on, H, uh, on History Channel. On History Channel. I said, oh, okay. Are you learning a lot? I said, well, I'm, I'm just fascinated. I've been watching them. And it's, yesterday's episode was really, really cool. It's about um, these two angels. They were trying to rescue um, this guy from the city and all everybody trying to get them, but he was like, this angel rescued him. Oh, how did he rescue him? Well, he was uh, taking out a sword, and he was like, two swords, and out there, he was doing these martial arts, samurai moves, and he's like, slashing and killing all the people. 
Is this story about Sodom and Gomorrah? About Lot? Yeah, about Lot. Yes. And he was protecting them, and, and Lot and his family were following them, and the angel was out there just chopping everybody in pieces. It was so awesome. I said, what did you learn from it? Well, that, that's what I got from it. See, he completely missed the point. See, people are more sensationalized about the angels and the martial arts and the theatrics and the choreography than they are about the message of Solomon and Gomorrah, which is that you should repent of your sins, otherwise you will also be judged. That's the message. But completely miss the message because the theatrics overshadow the message. That's what Jesus was dealing with. That's what he's dealing with. All the miracles, all the healings, people are taking it out of context. He didn't want people to take it out of the context. He wanted people to understand within the context that he is the Messiah, is God, that you should come to him, obey him, and believe on him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Come to him, repent of your sins, in poor in spirit, in, in mourning over your sins, and, and, and change your heart uh, before God. So when people refused to do that, they just wanted more and more miracles. And that's what happened in the book of Matthew. If you read Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, they refused to acknowledge Jesus, but they want more signs. Teachers, show us more signs. More signs, more miracles. And Jesus answered this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. He says, No sign will be given to this generation except one sign. That is what? Sign Jonah. Just as Jonah was the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of earth for three days and three nights. Only one more sign you need. Sign of my crucifixion, sign of my death, the sign of me paying for your sins as I die for you on the cross. That is the sign, that is a miracle that you need. So we proclaim Jesus. If that is the miracle that Jesus declared to be the most important miracle of his life, and certainly that is the miracle that we proclaim, that is the miracle that we focus on. We proclaim the gospel, telling everyone that Jesus Christ came to die for the penalty of our sins, to give his righteousness to us. If we will believe, we shall be saved unto the Lord. We shall be living for him today, living an abundant life for Jesus, as well as have eternal life with Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the word of God. We tell people this true message. However, as we tell people about this true message, there will be one last group who are going to demonstrate unbelief. So first, we saw that there are going to be people who believe, individuals who believe, there are going to be people who are fascinated, and thirdly, we're going to face people who are simply going to dem demonstrate or declare unbelief. As in verse 34, it says this. But the Pharisees said, verse 34, he cast out the demons by the prince of demons. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So lastly, we're going to see that the Pharisees demonstrate unbelief. Now, as Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah, he's becoming rather popular. Rather popular because of his healing ministry. People love Jesus for his healing. So he's coming at this point where he's at, well, kind of a conflict with the Pharisees. Jesus had been calling the Pharisees hypocrites because the Pharisees are the religious establishment of those days. They have been demonstrating themselves to be the holy people of God. But in their holiness, it's only external. There's no internal heart attitude in their holiness. They're all doing it for show. They fasted, they prayed, they gave. But all of it which is for show. To uphold, to uphold, themselves, uphold, themselves, uphold themselves in that religious establishment. It was never ever for God. So Jesus called them out on it. And the Pharisees were quite angry. Not was only Jesus calling them out on their sin, Jesus was also hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners who the Pharisees said, these are the people you should not hang out with. 
So Jesus is doing exact things that are opposite of what the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do. Now, Jesus was there. He was popular. He was healing all. And the Pharisees were desperately wanting Jesus to be on their side. They wanted Jesus to be on their side because Jesus was very popular. But the Jesus was, at that time, Jesus simply was not playing their games. Jesus was doing God's work. So the Pharisees, what they did is that they became upset. Every day Jesus ministered, Jesus was chipping away at the power of the Pharisees. They did not want that. So from their perspective, because they wanted to maintain the political and also the religious power, they began to sling rot or sling mud at Jesus, kind of like the election which we have today. Just sling mud. Sling mud. Discredit Jesus as much as they can. The way they do it, by verse 34, is by telling others or making a statement that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of what? Of the prince of demons. You see, you simply cannot deny the fact that Jesus was performing miracles. You cannot. It was happening all day long. I mean, what Jesus, what Matthew lists here, Matthew chapter in verse chapter 9, it was very like a very typical day of Jesus. Literally, this thing was happening all day long. People were being healed of their blindness. People were healed of their lame. Uh, able, uh, the lame was being healed. People who can't walk was being healed. People who can't talk was being healed. People who can't do any kind of thing, they were being healed. So you simply cannot deny the fact that Jesus healed. But what can you do? You can deny the source of the power. That's what they went for. See, I cannot deny, it would be foolish for us to deny the fact that Jesus healed, that he healed, but I can deny the source of the power. So they denied the fact that Jesus was doing by God, but they said Jesus is doing by demons, prince of demons. And we see the Pharisees finally made this official in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, uh, 27, when declared that Jesus Christ was doing these miracles by the power of what? Beelzebub, right? Beelzebub, the prince of demons, the king of demons. So Jesus says to them, hey, at that passage, Satan cannot cast out Satan. What you're saying is absolutely foolish. Like in the spiritual world, it doesn't even work that way. It's absolutely foolish for you to make that statement. Satan cannot cast out Satan. If Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom is not going to stand. That's not going to happen. It's absolutely foolish for you to say that. That's a foolish argument. And yet, the Pharisees had to hang on to this foolish argument because that's all they got. That's all they got. They don't have anything else. They'd rather hang on to a foolish argument than to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed himself to be. So certainly today, we're going to find out that there are people who also hold on to all kinds of foolish argument in order not to believe in God. Because if you believe that God is God, then you also have to submit to him as your Lord and Savior. See, look around us today. You see the trees, you see the sun, you, see the, you feel the air, you breathe in the, the, the oxygen, the atmosphere. All these things did not just come about because of chance. That's a foolish argument. It's a foolish argument for me to say that I can blow up some material a million times and one day become a puppet. It's a foolish argument that you'll blow up this world a billion times and one day you'll become this with intricacies, intelligent design. It's foolish. And yet the world will hang on to this foolish argument. They'll rather believe in evolution than believe that God created this world. Why? Because if they believe that God created this world, they will also have to submit to the Creator. 
So for the reason why they don't want to submit to the creator, they rather hang on to foolish arguments such as evolution. They can find another argument that would grab onto that as quickly as possible, but they don't have nothing. They would say that we're all here because of chance. That's a foolish argument. But people will believe foolish arguments in this world because hearts are so hard against God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this. It says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Each one of us, before we came to know our Lord and Savior, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We would rather believe in something that's foolish than come to our Lord Jesus Christ and believe unto Him. We're dead. But then, the grace of God comes through in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, which says, By grace you are saved. Jesus elected us, selected us, entered into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated us, made us His. And some of us experienced this before. Before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will believe in anything than to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have all kinds of foolish ideas in your head, right? You have all kinds of foolish ideas that didn't make sense. But now we have the Spirit of God within you. When God actually saved you, now you are, your eyes are open. Your eyes are so open that you look back in your foolish ways. I can't believe I used to believe in that. But it's because your eyes are opened by the Spirit of God. God drew near to you. He died for your sins. He paid for the penalty of your sins. He gave his righteousness to you. He put his Holy Spirit in your heart. And you're forever changed. That's the, amen, that is the, the beauty of the gospel. That is what we experienced. So today, in light of that, our calling today is to come to him and believe. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, your calling today is to believe. Believe unto the Lord Jesus. Believe who he says he is. That means that believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. Believe that he gives perfect righteousness to you. Believe that without him that you're nothing. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot become a better or a good enough a person for heaven. You simply cannot. You must believe and surrender your life to Jesus. It's not about improving your life. It's not about improving your morals. It's about believing and let his righteousness be upon you. And then as you believe, and then you surrender your life. You surrender your life to obey him. Now, surrendering your life to obey God is not some kind of work that what you do, again, it's not, it's not for the purpose of self-improvement. It's for the purpose of worship. You're not becoming a better Christian because you just want to be a better Christian for the sake of becoming a better Christian. You become a better Christian or living your life in holiness for the Lord because you are doing it out of worship for God. God deserves your worship. God deserves your praise. God deserves your life. So out of that, you are going to surrender your life to Jesus. We saw a bunch of examples of surrendering here in the book of Matthew, chapter 8 and chapter 9, when people actually came to Jesus and surrendered their life to Jesus. Surrendering your life is not about self-improvement. Surrendering your life is about surrendering. We see in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, the surrendering of the centurion. The centurion had to give up his prestige to come to Jesus. We saw the surrendering of Jairus. He had to forsake his relationship with the Pharisees in order to come to Jesus. There's a surrender that we have to do. Again, it's not about self-improvement. It's about surrendering as a heart of worship before God. So surrendering means that we're going to give our life. We're going to give our time. We're going to give our talent. We're going to give up our treasure for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes that, mean, that might mean that you're going to surrender a job. You're going to surrender a promotion so that you could be at church. Surrender promotion that tells you they got to work during Sunday. So you know why I can't do that? I'm going to be at church. You might have to surrender a relationship that was beneficial, but this relationship wasn't glorifying to God. But it's appealing to your flesh. You surrender that for the Lord because you're worshiping God from your life. And then 
You might even one day will consider surrendering your finances, as we all do here at our church. We all have surrendered our, our, our finances to see the kingdom of God grow, to give to the Lord. As we do so, I think our greatest encouragement of surrendering to our Lord Jesus Christ is that we don't do this alone. We can't be doing this alone. But we do it together as a church of God. That's our greatest encouragement. See, anything I ask you to do, I would not do, I would not, not do myself. You understand that? Anything I ask you to do, I will also do myself. But we do it together as a body of Christ. That is the greatest encouragement we got. We're encouraged because we see other people surrendering their lives to Jesus. We're encouraged because we know that we're not alone in this battle. That's the greatest encouragement. And we get to tell other people how the Lord has provided for us. I can tell you a million, I'm not living that long, but a lot of stories in my life, okay? A lot of stories in my life where God provided for me as I surrendered. God providing finances, God providing health, God provided a place to live, God provided direction for my life, all because I surrendered to the Lord. And I'm sure that you can tell examples of that of those stories in your own life as well. As we share these stories, we're encouraged by the Lord. We get to have joy in Jesus Christ as we are together surrendering to Him and obeying Him together. And when we live in this way, our lives together are going to shine forth as light to this world. That is the goal. We're also sharing the gospel. We're telling people, hey, there's a greater way to live. There's a better way to live. There's a more abundant way to live. Here's the message of Jesus. He died for you on the cross. Will you believe? If you do, you can come and live the abundant life with the Lord as we are doing. That's the promise. That is the blessing. So today we see three promises or three responses to the Lord Jesus Christ as he proclaims himself to be the Lord and Savior of this world. Some are going to believe. We're going to find this in this world as well. Some are going to believe. Some are going to be simply fascinated, but they're going to stand on the sidelines. And then lastly, some are going to openly declare unbelief. Jesus, according to the word of God, is set is said to be set for the rise and the fall of many. He is where many are going to rise. He is where many are going to fall. These words are spoken by a man named Simeon, a priest in the temple of God when Jesus was presented at the temple on the 40th day when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple and presented Jesus along with a sacrifice of turtle doves. This man Simeon was told by God that he will not die until he sees the Messiah, and this is true. His eyes had seen the Messiah when he saw the baby Jesus. He said these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, said, Jesus, or this baby, or this child, is set for the rise and the fall of many. And to this day, we see this to be true. He is. People are, declare, uh, people are debating about who Jesus is. People are choosing to live for him. Many are. People are choosing just to be fascinated about him, make plays about him, make stories about him, make alternate history about him. And there are people who are simply going to declare unbelief. Many lives are rising and falling because of Jesus. But we also know in the final day this will be true. When Jesus stands or sit behind that great white throne judgment, many are going to rise into eternity with him because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, many are going to fall into eternity without him because they refuse to believe in him. So today, let us be those who rise. Let us be those who rise with our Lord Jesus. Let's believe into our Lord Jesus Christ so today we can live an abundant life for our Lord as well as to look forward to the eternal life which will be with him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we 
thank you, God, for this opportunity we get to exposit your word and, and, and see the response of the people um, as they are presented in scripture, those who are going to believe, those who are going to be fascinated, and those who are going to openly declare unbelief. Lord, our heart hurts for this world. And there are many people who, actually majority of the people in this world are going to land in the last two options. They're going to be simply fascinated, but they don't want to step in, and there are going to be those who are simply going to declare unbelief. But Lord, may us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ be a light to this world. May you cause us to live in such a way that we're enjoying the abundant life that is in Jesus Christ, as well as telling people about who you are. Lord, we know this will not be easy, as those who are coming to you oftentimes have to make sacrifices. But may we be willing to make those sacrifices for you, God, as a heart of worship, coming from a heart of commitment, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for the way which you have led us, the way which you have healed us. May we today live for you, God. May this week be a life of living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.